Now, don't you just hate it when you're reading a book or, or watching a film and you're really getting into it and the story and, uh, and maybe a particular character or something like that. And then for some unbeknownst reason, the author or the director just veers off to a far more dull and boring story or boring character. Do you ever get that feeling? Here are a couple of books, films, what are they? Um, I get this, I've had this most uh, in my experience. Uh, when as a good husband that I am, I've accompanied my wife to watch the Twilight films in the cinema. <laughs> I'm glad that there was a noise there, because I thought for a minute, will people have heard of Twilight? That's all right, I'm, gl- I'm glad of that. Stephanie Meyer's teen fiction uh, series. Um, and basically, I realised upon going along, it was very self-sacrificial on my part. I was thinking, I'm going to serve my wife here. You know, I, there's not going to be a lot for me. But there's quite soon I realised this isn't your average Reese Witherspoon flick that I get dragged along to here. There are two of the finest monsters that monster folklore have, has thrown at us, the werewolf and the vampire. I mean, that's, there's something here for me here. And as I'm watching the film, I find out they don't like each other very much, these monsters. There's going to be a massive fight. I can see it. It's going to be great. It's probably going to be a bit of a ruck. And I'm, re- I'm getting, this is, I don't really want to say this, I'm, I was going to say getting really into it. I wasn't getting really into it. It's getting a tiny bit interested <laughs> in it, more than my popcorn. And so things are going right. And then every now and again, far too regularly, suddenly, I'm like, yes. And then suddenly the, the camera moves, the, the music changes. And it's all to do with, does she like this bloke or does she like this bloke? And there's cameras spinning around and her wi- lips are twitching and anyone who's seen it will know my feeling. Now, I, I know that for some of you the opposite happens and you're like, what's it with the werewolves fighting? I want more of Bella and Edward or Jacob. I know that for some people that's the case. However, you get the idea. Sometimes there is a distraction in the plot that we don't particularly appreciate. Now, we've been going through Luke's gospel for quite some time now and we are now on a passage where, I, Dave, I thought you'd come up to give me a hug there for a minute. <laughs> Dave, come on. Beautiful, beautiful. Free hugs. Anyway, um, we've got a possible moment like that in Luke's gospel. Okay, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 15, if you've got a Bible. But I'll explain what I mean, okay? So far in Luke's gospel, this is what Luke's been doing. Luke has been explaining the most exciting event in human history to us. And by event, I mean person. He has been explaining how God has become a person, Jesus, and he's, he's in human form and is doing all this stuff. And he's doing the kind of stuff from the early chapters of Luke that you would imagine God doing as a man. I mean, he's living up to all expectations. He's healing the sick. He's freeing people from spiritual oppression. He's forgiving sins just with a word. He's actually redefining the whole of religion as the world has known it up to that point. And not only that, he's putting the nose out of joint of some characters who no one really warms to in the Gospels. The Pharisees, the religious leaders who are actually uh, just oh, it's all about rules, do this, do this, very cold individuals. And so you're rooting for Jesus. You're rooting Luke. You're thinking, this guy's great. He's a revolutionary. He's kind. He's loving. He's powerful. He doesn't take any nonsense. And you don't want to take your eyes off him. But then Luke takes our eyes off him. And he focuses us from the king of glory in human form that we can all see to 12 very ordinary blokes on a mountain. So let's pick it up in verse 12. Let's see what I mean. Luke 6, 12 to 50. I'm reading in the New Living Translation, if that will help you with your phones as you scroll through uh, different translations. Here we go. One day soon afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples and chose 12 of them to be apostles. Here are their names. Simon, whom he named Peter. 
Andrew, Peter's brother, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. I think this is a potential Edward Jacob moment for me here. I mean, you could ask, I mean, just so you know, where there are no vampires, werewolves, or love triangles going on in this story. I don't mean that, okay, just to get out of the way. But you might well say this, look, Luke, if you're talking to the writer of this book, who cares about Simon the Zealot? I mean, who cares? Who cares about James, son of Alphaeus? You don't even get to hear about these guys again after this passage in the Bible. Luke, why are you bothering them? We don't want Bartholomew we want Jesus. Jesus was really good. You were really onto something with that plot there. But Matthew, I don't mind about him. I want Jesus. Now, in a sense, that would be an excellent response. That would be gold star if you were thinking that, because we should always want Jesus in everything we're doing. However, as I want to show today, this is not a lull in the plot here. Luke is not taking us down a, a cul-de-sac where soft focus lenses are now being employed and like slow strings. No, it's, it's nothing like that at all. In many ways, this passage here, I want to argue today, is the most directly relevant passage to us in Luke's gospel so far. And actually, when we grasp the importance of what Jesus is doing here, I think we can understand how we can follow Jesus most effectively and actually, setting the bar quite high here, change the world that we live in for good. Now, I want to say, just before we get into a, a little bit more, I'm going to be mainly speaking, I guess, to, to those of you who are Christians today. And at, at certain moments, I'm even going to hone in to those of you who are part of Church Central here, which I know would not be everybody who's here. Um, so just to, so you're aware of that. But however, if, if you're not a Christian here today, I want to um, just say to you at the start, this is for you as well. I don't want you to feel excluded or think this is some in-house talk we're doing here and you just have to look in. I want to uh, ask you all the way through to be thinking of this question I'd encourage you to think about look how could I get involved in what John is explaining today of what what we're seeing in the Bible today I want you even if you think well I'm not planning to get involved I want to think imagine imagine yourself in this scene here because right at the end of what I'm saying today I'm going to come back to you to talk to you about maybe how you can get involved in this whole thing okay then here's the question Why then does Luke take our eyes off Jesus to focus on these 12 disciples or apostles or whatever they are in this passage? Well, let's back up a little bit just to make sure we're all up to speed on the whole disciple thing first, okay? In the ancient world, people had disciples. Not just just ordinary people, but if you were a teacher of a philosophy or a religion, you would have disciples. So Epicurus, who you may remember from last time's talk, the Epicureans followed him, he had disciples. Pythagoras, who you might remember from maths classes, he had disciples. John the Baptist had disciples. The Pharisees had disciples. And their disciples, in all cases, would be people who followed the teaching of that particular teacher or that particular movement. Now, some disciples took this whole following thing very literally, and they would literally follow the leader around as a full-time job. So if you remember back to the last chapter, Simon uh, and James and John are fishing. It says at the end of the passage, they left everything and followed Jesus. Everything included their job. They gave up their job, left the fishing boats on the shore, full-time job, following Jesus around, hanging off his every word, helping him out. That was the kind of full-time disciple. But others, I suppose, would follow in a slightly more figurative sense. They'd be loyal. They'd try to live out the teaching of their particular teacher in their lives, but their lives would still be lived in the context it was lived before. So, for example, Joseph of Arimathea, 
who's most famous for the fact that when Jesus died, he took Jesus' body, put it in his own tomb. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. That was his job. Yet it says in John's gospel, he was a disciple of Jesus. Now, by Luke chapter 6, Jesus has already gathered a whole band of both types of followers like this. And uh, this established group in verse 13, if you look at the passage, I think it's behind us there, isn't it? Good, it's going to be there the whole time, so you can just see it there. Um, at daybreak, it says in verse 13, he called together all of his disciples, so he got them all, and then he chose 12 of them to be his apostles. I mean, I often thought this passage, importance, was to do with the fact that this is where Jesus calls his disciples, gets them there. For, right, this is where we start. This isn't where it started. There were loads of disciples of whom he chose 12. And I guess... When we see that, the question maybe is not even just, why will we be distracted from Jesus for this boring stuff about these 12 guys? Maybe the question is to Jesus himself, of why on earth are you doing this, Jesus? I mean, this operation here is potentially incredibly divisive. I mean, you might think of uh, the, the joy of Judas, son of James, or, or Thomas, as they make it the cut. But what about poor Percy as he walks down the mountain? Like, oh, I reckon I was at least 13th. Oh, well. But what, what about the other guys? There were loads of people here who did not get chosen. This is potentially a, a way of, a, of causing trouble with your followers, not making it better. You could simply see it as unnecessary micromanagement. Jesus, look, you've already got a whole load of people following you. Why bother making this sort of special A-team and even giving them this name, the Apostles? Okay, what, why bother doing it? Now, I think there are probably several reasons for that, but Luke seems to hit on one that he hints here that the other Gospels don't really uh, mention so, so much. And we see it in this one uh, word that, of their new kind of Christian name. It says at the end of uh, that verse, he chose 12 of them to be apostles. A better translation would be he chose uh, 12 of them and called them the apostles. This is their new name. This is, if, if this is a band. This is, hey, we are the apostles. Welcome. You might have known us as the disciples. You know, we had a bit of a riff with the others, but we're here. Okay, they're the, the apostles. They have a new name in what they're doing. Now, um, there's all sorts of discussions about the exact meaning of the term apostle. We don't mean sent one, someone who's sent. There are massive books written on this, and if you want to, Go and read them. Be my guest. Um, now, it is quite inter- it's very interesting and very helpful to understand the meaning of apostles now and in the early church. But I'm not going to go too much into that uh, today. I want to just bring a simple fact to your attention. And that's this. They were called the apostles. That was their name. Okay. However, it was not their name really for quite a long time after this period. When they were named the apostles here, you'd have thought then, whenever they're mentioned again, they'll be the apostles. Well, that's not the case. If you look through the Gospels, they're often called the disciples, the twelve, sometimes the apostles, and this and that. However, the name the apostles, where this really took off, was when Jesus had died, resurrected, and gone back to heaven. And then, that's the name they're given. They are always the apostles. They're never called the twelve disciples again. So, for example, the first book of Acts, Acts being the sequel to Luke after Jesus has gone back to heaven, the kind of what happens next book. In the very first chapter, there are as many references to these guys as the apostles as there is in the whole of the book of Luke. You know, I think, well, who cares? That doesn't matter. It's an incredibly small point. Well, this is the point I think Luke's doing here. Luke's mentioning them as the apostles. He's doing something of a flash forward. 
Now remember, his early readers in the first century, they would have been around in this time where they were called the apostles. They would have known that word. That was a, a buzzword in the first century church, apostles. The minute they read this and it says, he chose 12 of them to be apostles. They're like, ah, I know those guys, the apostles. Yeah, but they're around, aren't they? The, the guys in Jerusalem that start everything off, okay? But also, at that point, there were other guys called apostles. And they would have known, they're the guys who start churches. They're the church guys. And maybe there'd have been a church in a church that Peter started. Maybe there'd have been a church in the apostle Paul started, who's not on our list here, but became an apostle later. But they would have known the, ch- the apostles. They're the church guys. And actually... For them, as, as they see this, and suddenly there is a continuity between Jesus' experience and theirs given by Luke, they would have been aware, not just did the apostles start individual churches. So if you're in Ephesus, you know, Paul started this church. Apostles started this church. They didn't know, actually, as well, that in a very significant way, the apostles started the whole idea of church. Church is a very familiar concept to, to most of you, whether you're, you're part of this church, another church, or not even part of a church, you'll know the idea roughly of how churches work. Well, there was no idea at the beginning because it wasn't invented. And for many of the early church, they think, well, the apostles, they were the guys who invented church. That's what they did. Well, they would have been almost correct in that case. And that's Luke's point here. But because by flashing forward to the apostolic age in this very passage and using this sort of buzzword, what he's doing here is saying, look, this is the origin story of the apostles. You're seeing those apostles, you know, this is where they came from. And not just the origin story of the apostles. Here we have the very, very beginnings of what is now known as the Christian church. It's here on this mountain where Jesus gathers these 12 guys to him. Jesus is saying this. Luke's saying this, sorry, in this passage, Jesus is laying the very foundation stones of the Christian church. That's what's happening on this mountain. Now, as I was thinking this, I found the foundation imagery quite helpful. It's just straight off, okay, here's the foundation, church will be built on this. But it's not just helpful, it's thoroughly biblical as well. There's a passage in Revelation 21 that makes this point. Uh, Revelation 21, 14, um, and if you're familiar with Revelation, it's a strange book in many places. It has these symbolic pictures of dragons and people with lots of heads and stuff like that. that. In this passage, you've got the most bizarre picture in the whole of Revelation. See how you do with this in your mind, what picture comes into your mind. John says, he saw the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven like a city dressed as a bride. I don't know what pictures are going on there. I'll I'll tell you my picture. My picture is kind of a massive castle sort of thing with a wedding dress on. That's what I'm thinking. I don't know if you've got tiaras on the turrets or stuff like that. But anyway, city dressed as bride. Now, while the image is slightly bizarre, the point of the passage is very clear. Is that he's picturing the end of time where the church dressed as a bride for her bridegroom comes down. And it's, it's this mysterious union between the bride Jesus and his bride, the church. It's the, the church is the city coming for, for uh, her lover, the son, the one who came from heaven to save her and rescue her and make her white and pure for that day. That's the image here. And it's interesting to see what the city is built on. Revelation 12, 14, it says this. The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, Peter's brother, James, 
John, Philip. It's not just a name, a list of names. Luke thought, should I put it in, shall I not, let's stick it in. This is a list of names, Judas Iscariot. It's like controversy there. Will it be him or Mattathias who replaces him later? But anyway, this is a list of names that will be, at the end of time, written somehow mysteriously on the very foundations of the Christian church. It's amazing. Perhaps now, I guess, we can see something and understand something of the importance that Jesus gives this episode then. Because look in the passage at his preparation here. What, what does he do? Question, question, what does Jesus do to prepare for this event? Prays. He prays. And he prays all night long. He prays all night long. Now, you might think, oh yeah, well Jesus was into praying, wasn't he? So that's, uh, that's, that's how it goes. Actually, this is the moment in the Gospels with the most sustained period of prayer of Jesus. So the most, there's no other time that's noted where he prayed all night. And in fact, Jesus, while he prayed all the time as part of the daily routine, it's very rare for Jesus to pray to prepare for anything. Think of some of Jesus' key miracles, raising Lazarus from the dead. There's hardly a mention of prayer in that. You have days before, Jesus knows. It never says he went aside to pray. He prays once at the end, like a 10-second prayer. No, that he very rarely prepares things. The only other time I can think of, it might be others, but where there's sustained prayer and preparation for something in his life, is preparing for the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, just even that comparison there should show you, this is a massive deal, what's happening here. This is not a diversion. This is not Jesus taking a breather to do some admin. This is not him... Uh, grabbing a moment with his mates before getting back to business. No, Luke makes it clear. This is the moment that Jesus, the Son of God, needs most help from his Father for. Because actually, Jesus is doing a massive miracle here. Let's consider the miracle for a second of what he did that day. Jesus is initiating an institution that is going to literally transform planet Earth. You know, when you pray, I, I'd often pray prayers like, I want to see the church have more of a voice in our society, the church affect our culture more. That's a good prayer. That's a, that's a prayer I think we should pray. However, it's good to stop when you pray that and just to step back a second and reflect on how church has already shaped the culture we live in. If you remove the Christian church from Western culture and, and most cultures in the world, actually, it's not just, oh, it's slightly different and there's a few less spires on the, uh, on the hillside, the whole thing is completely different, completely, if it's even still here. It would be an entirely different kettle of fish, and worse, by some way, for it. Now, this is the institution that's going to transform the world, and more so as days go on. I mean, in 350 years from this time, when Jesus appoints the Twelve, this institution that he's starting here, the church, overthrows the entire Roman Empire and causes the biggest empire probably in human history to suddenly turn to Christianity to worship a, 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 a Palestinian carpenter from some backwater. Wow. He prayed all night long for it. And on this day, he puts into operation this plan to save the entire world through his life, death, and resurrection, but also through the church. Well, what's the church? The church is the same now as it's always been. Ordinary, flawed, unimpressive human beings like the 12 disciples or apostles, like me and like you. So let us in the rest of our time draw out three things that we learn about the church from this passage and a little bit wider that help us 
to see why Jesus was so excited about it and it is today so excited about the church and how we can best take our place in his church as well. So three things quickly. Number one is this. Jesus identifies himself with the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Paul, in, in chapter 12 as a whole, Paul uh, is writing to a church, a local church, okay? And it's a church in a place called Corinth. And he's encouraging them to get on and to work together and to use their different gifts to help each other, okay? He's saying, and he uses an image that some of us are familiar with, the image of the human body. He's saying, look, like in a body, all the bits work together, you should be the same. Hands work, hopefully, together with feet and eyes and ears, etc., etc. You don't have the ears arguing with the eyes and things like that. Work together. Use your gifts for the good of the body. And then he says this. And for some of you who know this passage, and you think, oh, yeah, of course he's going to say this. This is not on the cards. This is not what they expected him to write. This is verse 27. All of you together are Christ's body. All of you together are Christ's body. The church is the body of Christ. Again, some of you think, yeah, move on, I've heard this. Think, think about this for a second. The church is the body of Christ. 2,000 years ago, Christ walked the streets of Palestine. And he taught with his mouth. He did miracles with his hands. He showed love through his body literally broken and his blood literally spilled. And we read stories of a real man in a real body and we love him. Don't we? We look at it. He's attractive. I was talking about this last time. He's attractive. You look at Jesus. He's attractive. He's amazing. He draws you into him. And then as I, as I talked on last time, we know in a very real way, Jesus, although he went back to heaven after his resurrection, is still with us today through the Holy Spirit. And actually, well, I hope this is the case, we love the Holy Spirit. We love him, don't we? We love the Spirit. Yeah, we love the Holy Spirit. We love it when we see him work in other people's lives, drawing people to Jesus. We'll crash. We love to see him in working in our lives, comforting us, counseling us, helping us in different ways. But the funny thing about the Spirit is, he's quite hard to pin down. It's like Jesus says in John 3, the Spirit blows where he wants. You don't know where he comes from or where he goes. And so it's quite hard to get a handle where the work of the Spirit starts and where it ends and what's happening. And it doesn't take a miracle, to, uh, a revelation to work out why. Why can we not pin down the work of the Spirit as clearly? Well, it's very clear. The Spirit does not have a body. That's why. Very handy in some ways. You can get around everywhere at the same time. But in other ways, it's harder to see him as clearly as we see the work of Jesus in the pages of Scripture. So the question, where can we see Jesus working today most like he did in Scripture? Question. What do you reckon? In church. It's the body of Christ. Luke writes in Acts 1, 1-2, right at the beginning of the sequel, when Jesus, talking about what's going to happen now after Jesus has gone to heaven, he says this, In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. You might want to question it and say, well, what do you mean? Don't you mean everything Jesus did and taught because he's not here anymore? No, no, well, began to do and teach is exactly right because Luke's point all along is, yeah, he started it off and he's back through his spirit. But it's not just that. He's got a body now to continue his work. What is it? It's the church. The church continues the job of Jesus. The church is Jesus to other people. I don't know, don't know if you ever thought of it or taught like this, of saying, I want to be Jesus to my friends. 
Like, what will Jesus do? I want to be Jesus. Now, that's great. That's a really good thing to want to do. But actually, you can try as hard as you want. You will never truly, on your own, be Jesus to your friends. Why? Because the church is his body. That's how Jesus planned it. And so on the back of that, you look at the book of Acts, and it reads very much like a gospel. Healing, setting people free, clashes with religious institutions, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. It's because the church seamlessly continues the work of Jesus. If we are passionate about Jesus, and I, and I hope we are, and I know being in a church like this is great, when it, it's so clear that's the case. But if we're passionate about Jesus, we must be passionate about his church. Because in a sense, the church is the thing that looks most like Jesus that is around today. So point one, Jesus identifies himself with the church. Point two, is this, and it's, you might think, oh, we've gone from the big idea here just to kind of very specifics here, but point two from this passage I see is the organization is God's plan, not a human method of control in the church. Organization is God's plan, not a human method of control in the church. I don't know if you've ever heard anyone say this, I, I, don't, I, I don't mind God, but I'm not too keen on organized religion. You know, when, when people say it to me, I've got a great line that I never spill out, but what I should say at that point is, that's fantastic, you should come to my life group, you'll see what it's like when it's disorganised, <laughs> I'm storing that up my sleeve. However, we can be very suspicious of organisation, I mean, and rightly so in some cases, we look at the, the, the world around us, our culture, it's uber organised, you see these massive corporations that seem to have organised themselves uh, into kind of these monolithic things that we wonder how good they are sometimes. We see hierarchies develop in institutions, in government. You might get fed up with those petty little memos you get at work to follow this work procedure and do X, Y, Z, just like this. You, those things might, might bother you and you wish for a kind of world free of administration, of structure, of organisation. I think Often it carries over to our Christian lives. Now, it might not be for everyone uh, might think like this, but I know many Christians would think like this. And they think, look, the Reformation was years ago, Johnny. We know we don't need priests now to get between us and God. We can come to Jesus ourselves. We can know God ourselves. God can speak to each of his children, and he does. We've got the Bible. We can read it. Why do we need an organized structure like the church to express our love for Jesus and help us to be to live out what Jesus wants us to do. Why can't many would, would hope? Why can't we just flit in and out of different churches as we want to, as it helps us? Or maybe even better, just do our own thing completely, living a life of kind of freewheeling adventures here, there, and everywhere. But we can't, I'm Jesus to people. Well, on the back of what I've already said, that the first thing I'd respond to this is that organization within God's people is not people's idea, it's Jesus' idea. Look at the passage again. You might not think we can get a whole load from these names, but we can get quite a bit, actually. First thing, I've said it already, it's just a, a recap, is that Jesus already had disciples. He chose to choose a special group, even to give them a special name. The, you have a different name. You'll be identified. You are the apostles here with special responsibilities. There's organization here. But secondly, we see in this passage that Jesus appoints the leader of this group. 
You might look back, oh, where's that? I can't see, see that there. Well, what's interesting here, and you can please feel free to do this in your, in your own time, there are, there are four lists of the 12 uh, apostles in, uh, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, okay? And the lists have the same people in. Sometimes uh, they have two different names, which can confuse you at points, but it's not too bad. Um, they're, they're, they're all there. However, the order is shifted around all over the place, okay? There's like kind of, I don't know, John might make it in number three, might move down slightly in one, etc., etc. However, one of the main things that stays constant is numero uno on our list. Simon called Peter or the rock. He's always at the top. He was the leader of this group. I mean, also, you've got here, it says that Jesus named this group the apostles, and straight away it says, and Simon, whom he named Peter. There's no one else on this. Jesus says, right, I'm going to get hold of you in such a way. I'm going to change your name because now you're this rock that I'm going to build on here. He's the leader of the group, uh, particularly in the time of Jesus and in the short time after as well. Now, you might think, well, we've got that. There's, there's more here as well, actually. It's not just Jesus had a special group with a leader. He also, within this group, has an inner circle as well. He has some disciples who he does more with than others. And again, go through the list. I know this is list stuff, boring, but you look at it, it's quite fun. Okay. The t- the, another thing about the order of this list is the top four are always the top four. Okay. So again, like I said, Philip might move up, uh, not Philip, uh, Andrew or James or John might move up and down a little bit but they're always the top four. And as you look through the Gospels, you see that there was those four there, particularly James, John, and Peter, but Andrew as well. They're Jesus in a circle. When he goes up to be transfigured on the mountain, it's not all of them come. It's three of those four come. When they're praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. They don't all go over. The inner circle goes with Jesus. Now, we could make far too much of this, but the point must be said, Jesus wanted his disciples organized. It's very clear. This is not just an organizational reshuffle, but it's organized. And as you read through the New Testament, it's, it's amazing how much is given over to structural detail about the church. I don't know whether you flick through those bits. I want something about love your neighbor or how do I do evangelism? I've got a list of the requirements of a deacon in the church. Why is this here? And it gets in there again later on. The stuff about leaders, how leadership uh, what, what, kind of, what kind of people should be leaders, about um, what to do in meetings, about how ministry should operate in church meetings, about how to administer ni- help to those in need. You know what? We get a very clear picture from the epistles, not of churches being informal social clubs, but of being very organized missionary vehicles with clear structures and values. Yeah, there's flexibility, but no, this is organized. Now look, I know it's possible for churches to over-organize. Isn't this a temptation? Uh, for us, we're, not for Russ, but for us. I almost said that, that's quite good. <laughs> oh, it's a prophetic, who knows? <laughs> churches can become over-organized where you, you don't rely on the spirit anymore, you rely on your organization. And sadly, you can see that some places where really, actually, the church is a business uh, which is kind of pimping a product to its consumers. The gospel is our product and there's targets. We want this number of bums on seats. We want this much money in the offering. I'm not in any way suggesting that's a route we should go down. But I want to challenge you. If your view of Christianity is this sort of organic, spontaneous experience in which organization is always to be regarded with great suspicion, I want to encourage you to think this through. Jesus wasn't some hippie on the mountain going, ah, 12. That was the number of tribes of Israel. Yeah, I have 12 of you. I don't know what the others are doing. They're late. No, there's no, nothing like that. No, this is, no, I'm praying all night. I'm going to get 12 here. And you know what? This is how we take the world, people. 
We're starting here. This is very, very thought through. And it's thought through and it's organized because we've got a vital job to do. We're not just here to kill time while Jesus clears up the rest of the mess that the fool's got us into. The church's job is this, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. How do we do it? We rely thoroughly on the Spirit. I'll tell you what, we need to be organized. Point three is this. The organization of the church is not to exalt leaders, but to empower all disciples. Luke 6 is not the X factor, okay? This is not like the guys being sent down the mountain. You didn't make it to boot camp. I'm really sorry. Like on X Factor, if you, have, if you watch X Factor, you'll find the ones who don't make it to boot camp are never seen or heard again. But there'll be a montage of them all crying, okay? That's, what, that, that's the best they'll get. Never come back. That's how it goes, okay? That's not what's happening here. He's not choosing the 12 to close the door on the other disciples. He's choosing 12 to empower the other disciples. And that's why the other disciples appear over and over again throughout the Gospels. Luke chapter 8, you've got Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Susanna following Jesus around, just like the others, probably just maybe even more. In uh, Luke 24, at the resurrection, I say maybe even more, it's Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Mary James's mum who are first to the tomb. It's not Peter, James, John. No, it's them. They were following Jesus all the time. They're not in the 12, but they're very, very important. In Acts, while Peter led the, the uh, apostles for some time, it's very clear in Acts that James, Jesus' brother, leads the church in Jerusalem very soon after Jesus' ascension. He's not on this list. He's a different James. He's not, not one of the 12. Key figures in Acts are Paul, Philip, Stephen, again, a different Philip, Silas, Timothy, Apollos, Aquila, Priscilla, it's not that the 12, right, we've got it now. You guys are carrying this through till you die. I hope you live a long time because it's all on you now. Not in the slightest. It's empowering the other guys. This is not an old boys network that Jesus is starting here. I think one of the most telling passages we will come to in a couple of months, I imagine, in, in Luke 9, Jesus gets this 12, the, the apostles, and he gets them. He says, right, guys, you are now doing an amiss, uh, a mission. That apostle thing, that sent thing, I'm going to send you to do something specific. And he gets them all together and he says to them, uh, go, tell everyone about the kingdom of God and heal the sick. And they go off to do a specific mission. Okay? And you might think, well, okay, got it. I understand now. The 12 are the doers. The others are the kind of sit at Jesus' feet, doughy-eyed and just kind of oh, hang on every word. That's how this works. Before you even can get that idea lodged in your head, in the very next chapter, Luke 10, says this. Jesus sends out 72 other disciples. This is other. They're different people. He gets 72 more and he says to them exactly the same. Verse 9 of chapter 10. Heal the sick. Tell them the kingdom of God is near you now. The 12 is not the doers. They're not the doers, the ones that do everything. And they're not to close the door on others. They're to set an example and set the template, actually, of all Christian discipleship. Listen, being a disciple of Jesus is never passively learning at the feet of the master, always. It does involve that, that's very important. But it's not always that. And that's not a full description. Being a disciple of Jesus is following in the footsteps of Jesus and doing the work that he does, sent out and commissioned by the Son of God. These disciples had a special role 
in the early church. But I'll tell you what, they're also a model for all of us. The Father calls Jesus, sends him out as baptism to start his ministry. Jesus calls the, the 12, sends them out to do his work. And in the same way, he does the same to every disciple he gets. He sends us out. So to close then, I want to apply this very specifically um, to three groups of people. You might fall in the gaps of these three. Please don't feel cheated. I'm sure there's something for you. But I've got three specific groups of people I want to hone in on here as we close. Firstly, this group. You might see yourself as a kind of action person. I'm not going to do a show of hands here. But kind of very keen. Like you can't sit still. You're full of passion and zeal. These are good things, you know. Uh, you want to save the world yesterday on your own if possible. That, you might see shades of that in, in yourself, maybe. And I reckon if that's you, I imagine you may well find church quite difficult sometimes. You might find it quite frustrating. Why isn't the church doing this? Why don't the church focus on this? Why don't the church care about this? Why aren't the church keeping up with me on this? And those might be feelings that you have. And some actually may be so frustrated with all this, you're thinking, I think I'm going to go. I want to I be able to do these good things faster than what we're doing them here. You want to f- find another church that focuses on those things you focus on or maybe just go it alone. Well, if that's you, I, I've got a revelation for you. And I, don't often, I don't have revelations like this often. It's from the world of physics. Now, I am not a physicist. Okay? I'm really not a physicist. But I'm pretty sure I remember this from when I was about 12. So with that proviso in place, I can be corrected. But listen... It is harder to get a large body moving than it is to get a small body moving. That sounds like physics, doesn't it? Yeah, it's harder to get a large body moving than it is to get a small body moving. Let's just make it specific. For one person to make a decision and act takes about a moment. You do, I decide to go for lunch. I go for lunch. That's how it goes. In a family, two or three or four. That takes a little bit longer. I want to go to McDonald's. No, that's terrible for the kids. Oh, let's talk this through. Let's look on the internet. Let's Google some stats. And you go to think. Ten people, now that's really difficult. You can't the idea. Maybe you need a think tank to make sure everyone's had their, had their role in the idea. You kind of win everyone to the idea. You go for the idea. hundred people, 300 people, a thousand people. That becomes trickier. It's more difficult. It's harder to get a large body moving than it is to get a small body moving. But listen, physics 102, here we come. While a larger body takes long to get going, longer to get going, once it gets going, it is very difficult to stop. That sounds right, doesn't it? Physics. Yes, nailed the physics. That's good. Leave now. (laughs) This is the way God planned to impact the world. This is how he's planned to do it. God has never, ever, ever been interested in quick fixes. Look for shortcuts in the Bible. There are none. Not one. He does things... Measured slowly, properly. And he's interested not in changing the world through a few fiery individuals that burn very bright, but actually leave very little effect. He's interested in getting large bodies moving in the same direction. He wants churches of people built on the foundation of the apostles, on their example, their teaching, full of the Spirit, united and together moving just like Jesus would in the world today. That's what he wants to do. It's not going to happen overnight, I tell you. But when it does, that is very difficult to stop. Because that's when the gospel advances. I want to challenge you, if you're an action person, please don't lose your passion and your zeal. Please don't. 
And you might have some great ideas that are fantastic. You think, oh, I want to change the world for Jesus. You've got idea one and two and three. And those ideas may be really appropriate and really helpful. But I want to challenge you. Please don't elevate your big ideas of how to change the world above God's big idea. Because he's already told us what it is. It's the local church. I'd encourage you to put that into practice, to commit to us here, to, to kind of talk to us about your frustrations, but persevere with the church as we commit to you and persevere with you. Second group of people, on the other extreme, faithful lovers of Jesus. Hopefully we're all that, but maybe there are some here who are faithful lovers of Jesus, who, if you've been honest, like the sitting at Jesus' feet stuff, but aren't so keen on the being sent out stuff. You like the idea of being a disciple as a learner, but you don't want to be a sent one who has to go and do the stuff of Jesus. I guess if you're in that boat, you might feel slightly disorientated in the church at the moment as well. You love worshipping God. You love going to midweek meetings, meeting other Christians and, and kind of spending good time with them. But actually, recently, it's suddenly multi-site and it's Silent for life groups every couple of months and it's asked to be on this rotor for an email in your inbox on that challenging you to take risks to step out look i know there's been a lot of change at, at church over the last couple of years and i also know it, it's not easy all the time it's, it's difficult it's not like it used to be in many ways here but one of the reasons for this is because as leaders of this church we are convinced that discipleship while it involves sitting at Jesus' feet like Mary and looking at him, it involves for all disciples being sent out to do the work of Jesus. And we want that to run through the blood of all of us in this church. Because in a sense, we're all disciples like the 12. We're sent out to do the work of Jesus. And actually, if you find that challenging and scary, the great news is this. If this is a job from Jesus, Jesus will equip you with his grace and his spirit to not just do the job, but Jesus gives joy in the things that he equips us to as well. I'd encourage you to step out, to go for it. And very, very finally, I told you I'd come back to you. Thank you for sticking with me so long if you're not a Christian here. I know there's been some jargon thrown in and some kind of in-house stuff. But here's the deal. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe you're thinking back in your head, what would it mean to become a Christian? Like, what does that mean? What's the core of Christianity? I, I want to make it kind of clear. I'm not explaining everything today, but I want to give you a bigger picture view of it. Becoming a Christian is not a call to individual spirituality, sitting on the top of a hill with your Bible on your own. That's not the call of being a Christian, okay? The call of being a Christian is to join a community of people who would like to change this world that we live in that is going to the dogs. That's what being a Christian is. It's built all around Jesus, the cornerstone of our faith. It means first and foremost committing your life to him, to follow him. And it means then living your life to continue the job he started. Literally to save the world. This is an adventure going on here. Being a Christian is adventurous. To save the world one person at a time. To bring God's love, to bring God's mercy, to bring God's justice. And how do we do it? Well, we join with other Christians. We join with Jesus' body And so we find a church to be part of which is moving in that direction. I want to ask you today, is today the day when you turn to follow Jesus? Give your life to him today. And at the same time, this isn't a different thing. As you do it, join his body. Join our church as we seek to continue the work of Jesus in 21st century Birmingham and even beyond. Maybe today's the day.